Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you, President Oaks. It feels good to be back on this campus. If you were to ask our children where they're from, they'll still say Provo. I don't know how many years that will go on. We hope they'll get acclimated to Rexburg soon. Provo and Rexburg have much in common, not the least of which is that in these two cities we have two great colleges. If you assume Hawaii is part of the BYU system as it is, there really are two colleges that offer full-fledged programs, a two-year college and a four-year college. And it has been a source of great satisfaction to me to notice the support and concern that BYU people have for Ricks College. I want you BYU people to know that the people at Ricks have noticed and that I sense a new era of communication and harmony that will be in our mutual interest, and I appreciate that. I also would like to share with you a little confidential observation I've made about things people say about us in the church schools so that we can uh, be alert to what the enemy is saying. Uh, Someone who's a graduate of another school in this state recently uh, asked me if I knew the difference between uh, a rooster, a patriot, and a co-ed who goes to a church college. And I said, no, I didn't know. And he wondered if I wanted to know. And I said, yes, that's something I've always wondered about. (laughs) And this is what he said. And I tell you this just so we can be on guard to see that these terrible things these people say are not true, which, of course, this isn't with one exception that I will mention. He said, a rooster says cock-a-doodle-doo. A patriot says yankee-doodle-doo. But a co-ed at Ricks or BYU says any doodle-doo. And as I say, that isn't true, but it was on one occasion, and that was when I proposed to my wife here uh, in Provo a number of years ago. And at least at that time, I was glad there were some people who believed that there was truth in that observation. The title for my remarks today, brothers and sisters, is a simple one that will leave you wondering what I mean. I hope it will be clear by the time I'm finished. The title is, Love is Not Blind. When I was a law student, my wife and I attended a student ward in which most of the members were graduate students. We developed close friendships with those who were experiencing, as we were, the uh, great expanding of our minds and learning the tools of intellectual analysis and the expanding of our spirits as we drew close to the Lord through such experiences as marriage and the bearing of our first children. One Sunday morning, the elders' quorum in our ward held a special testimony meeting characterized by spiritual warmth and personal openness. During that meeting, a fellow law student related a boyhood experience that occurred just after he had been ordained a deacon. He lived on a farm and had been promised that a calf about to be born would be his very own to raise. One summer morning, when his parents were away, he was working in the barn 
when the expectant cow began to calve prematurely. He watched in great amazement as the little calf was born, and then, without warning, the mother suddenly rolled over the little calf. She was trying to kill it. He could tell that. In his heart he cried out to the Lord for help. Not thinking about how much more the cow weighed than he did, he pushed on her with all his strength and somehow moved her away. He picked up the lifeless body of the calf in his arms, and broken-hearted, the tears running down his cheeks, he looked at it, wondering what had happened and what he could do. Then he remembered, he told us, that he held the priesthood now, and that he had every right to pray for additional help. And so he prayed from the depths of his boyish, believing heart. Before long, the little animal began breathing again. He knew that his prayer had been heard. After relating this story, the tears welled up in his eyes, and he said to us, Brethren, I tell you that story because I don't know that I would do now what I did then. I think I might not expect the Lord's help in that kind of situation. I'm not sure that I would believe now, even if I relived that experience, that the calf's survival was anything more than a coincidence. I don't understand what's happened to me since then, but I sense that something's gone a little bit wrong. My friend in the elders' quorum was not saying that he'd lost his faith in the Lord. He was simply being very honest with us, I think, in sharing both the childlike and the sophisticated dimensions of his experience. This story reflects the thoughts and feelings that many of us have in our own way during the college years. These thoughts and feelings are an important part of growing toward spiritual and intellectual maturity. They are also an important part of understanding both the strengths and the limitations of a college education. Before entering college, for most of us, things are pretty much black and white. There is very little gray in either the intellectual or the spiritual dimension of our perspective. And so most of the freshmen at places like BYU and Ricks have a wonderfully childlike optimism and loyalty that makes them more teachable and more pleasant than any other group of students. I consider it one of the great blessings of my life to be associated with so many young people at this point in their lives at Ricks College. It is typical of these young men and women to trust their teachers, to believe what they read, and to respond with boundless enthusiasm to invitations for Church service. Where else but in a student ward composed mostly of freshmen would you find a Church member so thrilled to be called by the bishop as the songbook coordinator, the sacrament bread coordinator, or maybe the Relief Society Sunday morning orange juice specialist? As one returned missionary recently told me, one thing he likes best about being in a student ward composed mostly of freshmen and sophomores is that when a topic like faith or repentance is raised for discussion, nobody yawns. As time goes on, however, experiences often accumulate that introduce a new dimension to a student's perspective. In general, I would characterize this new dimension as a growing awareness that there is a kind of gap between the real and the ideal, between what is and what ought to be. To illustrate, I ask that you imagine in your mind two circles, one inside the other. The inner boundary is the real or what is, the outer boundary the ideal or what ought to be. We stand 
at the inner boundary, reaching out, trying to pull ourselves closer to the ideals to which we've committed ourselves. We become aware of the distance between these two boundaries when we sense that some things about ourselves or the circumstances we witness are not all we wish they were. At that point, some frustrations can arise. Let me offer some illustrations of what I mean. Students at a large church college may suffer some great disillusionment when they lose some great battle with the giant red tape machine or when they remain unknown and nameless to a student ward bishop for weeks or even months, or when they brush up against a faculty member whose church commitments seem to them to be in doubt. At a more personal and spiritual level, perhaps an important prayer goes too long unanswered. One suffers some devastating setback with grades, with good health, with the prospects for marriage, and the heavens may seem closed in a time of great need. One may also become increasingly conscious of the imperfections of others, including parents, other church members, or even a bishop or a stake president. As the historians say, when we become more familiar with those who have been our heroes, we may begin to see their human limitations. One may also begin to confront such controversial issues as the role of women in the Church and differing political views among Church members. It's not uncommon for missionaries to encounter this gap between the real and the ideal, perhaps because new missionaries make more idealistic commitments than they have ever before taken upon themselves. And yet, in spite of their most valiant efforts, they may find themselves more than once fighting back the tears of disappointment when the promised fruits of a positive mental attitude somehow elude them. There is a kind of poignancy in those moments when we first discover that there might be some limitations to the idea that we can do anything we make up our minds to do. I once gave everything I had to that proposition in my determination to be the greatest shot-putter in the history of my junior high school, but I simply was not big enough. It really was hopeless. Experiences such as these can produce confusion and uncertainty, in a word, ambiguity. And one may yearn with nostalgia for simpler, easier times when things seemed not only more clear but more under our control. There may be the beginnings of skepticism, of criticism, of unwillingness to respond to authority, or unwillingness to respond to invitations to reach for ideals that now seem really beyond our grasp. Not everybody will encounter what I have been describing, and I don't mean to suggest that everyone must encounter such experiences. But college students are probably more likely to encounter ambiguity than almost any other group. The fundamental teachings of the restored gospel are potent, clear, and unambiguous. But it's possible on occasion to encounter some ambiguity even in studying the scriptures. Consider, for example, the case known to all of us of Nephi, who slayed Laban in order to obtain the scriptural record, that situation is not free from ambiguity until the reader realizes that God himself, who gave the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, was also the origin of the instructions to Nephi in that exceptional case. Consider also the case of Peter on the night he denied any knowledge of his master three times in succession. We commonly regard Peter as something of a coward whose commitment was not strong enough to make him rise to the Savior's defense. I once heard President Spencer W. Kimball offer an alternative interpretation of Peter's situation. In a talk on this campus in 1971, President Kimball, then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, 
said that the Savior's statement that Peter would deny him three times before the cock crowed just might have been a request to Peter, not a prediction. Jesus just might have been instructing his chief apostle to deny any association with the Master in order to ensure strong leadership for the Church after the crucifixion. As President Kimball asked, who can doubt Peter's boldness in being willing to stand up and be counted? He struck off the ear of the guard in the Garden of Gethsemane. President Kimball did not offer this view as the only interpretation, but he did say there's enough justification for it that it ought to be considered. So what's the answer? Was Peter a weakling? Or was he so crucial to the survival of the Church that he was prohibited from risking his life? We are not sure. This is a scriptural incident in which there is some ambiguity inhibiting our total understanding. Let us compare some other scriptural passages. The Lord has said that he cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. But elsewhere he said to the adulteress, Where are thine accusers? Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. There is indeed a principle of justice, but there is also a principle of mercy. At times these two correct principles collide with each other, as the unifying higher principle of the Atonement does its work. Even though God has given us correct principles by which we are to govern ourselves, it is not always easy to apply them to particular situations in our lives. We face concrete examples of that process every day as we attempt to fulfill our duties to family, church, community, and professional concerns. I remember hearing a young mother who lives in this community. She has several children. She has a responsible church position and a busy, faithful husband. She expressed her dismay as she tried to decide what should come first in her life and when. She was told, well, just be sure you put the Lord's work first. Her reply, but what if it's all the Lord's work? Similarly, my wife and I have often wondered how we should deal with our children in one of the 4,000 incidents not anticipated by any of the books on child-rearing. Sometimes one of us has a clear feeling about what should be done, but often I find myself simply having to tell her with great conviction and expressing my total confidence in her, Well, my dear, just be sure you do the right thing. Church and family life are not the only places where the right answer is not always on the tip of our tongue. If you would stretch your mind about the implications of ambiguity, you might think once again of the Vietnam War. Should our nation have tried to do more than it did or less than it did? Or perhaps you could consider whether we should sell all we have and donate our surplus to the millions of people who are starving. You might also ask yourself, how much governmental intervention into the regulation of business and private life is too much intervention? The people on the extreme sides of these questions convey great certainty about what should be done. However, I think some of these people are more interested in being certain than they are in being right. Turning to one more fertile field to illustrate the naturalness of ambiguity, I remember Arthur King's statement that most truly great literary works will raise some profound question about a human problem explore the question skillfully and in depth, and then leave the matter for the reader to resolve. He added that if the resolution seems too clear or too easy, the literature is perhaps not very good, or those reading it have missed its point. Take, for example, Dostoevsky's novel The Idiot, where the question is seriously raised whether it is possible for a true Christian to love unselfishly. 
The main character of the story is a pure and good person who loves two different women in two very different ways. One he loves as most men love women. She cares for him. She helps him. He is attracted to her romantically. She could make his life very happy. The other woman, a pathetically inadequate person, he loves primarily because she needs him desperately, and he has a compassionate heart. Posing the dilemma of which of these two women the man should marry, Dostoevsky seems to ask if it is possible for mortal man to be honestly devoted to the unselfish ideals of Christianity. As you might expect, he leaves that huge question unresolved, forcing the reader to ponder it for himself. I've intentionally tried to suggest a wide variety of instances in which the answers we seek are not as quickly apparent as we might have expected. And my suggestion is that some uncertainty is characteristic of mortal experience. The mists of darkness in Lehi's dream are for that very reason a symbolic representation of life as we face it on this planet. There are, of course, many things very certain and very clear, as so beautifully represented by the iron rod in Lehi's dream. But particularly to those who pursue a college education, there is enough complexity to make the topic of ambiguity worthy of discussion. Given, then, the existence of this gap for most of us between where we stand and where we'd like to be, and given that we will have at least some experiences that make us wonder, what are we to do? I think there are three different levels of dealing with ambiguity. There may be more. I'd like to talk about three. At level one, there are two typical attitudes, one of which is that we simply do not, perhaps cannot, see the problems that exist. Some seem almost consciously to filter out any perception of a gap between the real and the ideal. Those in this category are they for whom the gospel at its best is a firm handshake, an enthusiastic greeting, and a smiley button. Their mission was the best, their student ward is the best, and every new day is probably going to be the best day they ever had. These cheerful ones are happy, spontaneous, optimistic, and they always manage to hang loose. They are able to weather many storms that would seem formidable to more pessimistic types, though one wonders if the reason is often that they have somehow missed hearing that a storm was going on. A second group, a level one, has quite a different problem with the gap between what is and what ought to be. Those in this category eliminate the frustrations created by sensing a distance between the real and the ideal by, in effect, erasing the inner circle of reality. They cling to the ideal so single-mindedly that they are able to avoid feeling the pain that would come from facing the truth about themselves or about others or the world around them. I suppose it is this category that is sometimes represented in the letters to the editor of the school papers here and at Rick's, where such shock is occasionally expressed that some person or some part of the institution has fallen short of perfection, and the writer is aghast, surely not at the Lord's university. One of the problems experienced by those in this group is that they seem unable to distinguish between imperfections that matter a great deal and imperfections that may not matter so very much. I think Hugh Nibley must have had them in mind when he spoke of those who think it is more commendable to get up at 5 a.m. to write a bad book than it is to get up at 9 a.m. to write a good book. It's obvious to Brother Nibley that the exact hour when we arise is not quite as important as what we do once we are up. 
I recall a group of students I knew who once discussed which of the two types of people I've just described offered the most appropriate model for their emulation. They felt they had to choose between being relaxed and happy and carefree about the gospel or being an intense perfectionist. After listening to the discussion, I felt that both of these categories suffer from the same limitation. It's not, not much of a choice to select between a frantic concern with perfection and a forced superficial happiness. Both perspectives lack depth. They understand things too quickly and they draw conclusions from their experience too easily. Neither is very well prepared for adversity, and I fear that the first strong wind that comes along will blow them over. I believe this is primarily because their roots have not sunk enough into the soil of experience to establish a firm foundation. Both also reflect the thinness of a philosophy that is untempered by common sense. In both cases, it would be helpful simply to be more realistic about life's experiences, even if that means facing some questions and limitations that leave us a bit uncomfortable. That very discomfort can be a motivation toward real growth. As someone has said, the true Church is intended not only to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. I invite you then to step up to level two, where you see things for what they are, for only then can you deal with them in a meaningful and constructive way. If we are not willing to grapple with the frustration that comes from facing honestly and bravely the uncertainties we encounter, we may never develop the kind of spiritual maturity that is necessary for our ultimate preparations. It was Heber C. Kimball who once said that the Church has many close places through which it must pass. And when those days come, those living on borrowed light will not be able to stand. Thus, we need to develop the capacity to form judgments of our own about the value of ideas, opportunities, or people who may come into our lives. We won't always have the security of knowing whether a certain idea is Church-approved, because new ideas just don't always come along with little tags attached to them saying whether the Church has given them the stamp of approval, whether in the form of music, books, friends, or opportunities to serve. There is much that is lovely, of good report, and praiseworthy that is not the subject of detailed discussion in Church manuals or courses of instruction. Those who will not risk exposure to experiences of life that are not obviously related to some well-known Church word or program will, I believe, live less abundant and meaningful lives than the Lord intends. We must develop sufficient independence of judgment and maturity that we are prepared to handle the shafts and whirlwinds of adversity and contradiction that are so likely to come along in our lives sooner or later. When those times come, we cannot be living on borrowed light. We should not be deceived by the clear-cut labels some may use to describe circumstances that are, in fact, not so clear. Our encounters with reality and disappointment are, in fact, vital stages in the development of our maturity and understanding. Well, despite the value of this level two kind of awareness I've been talking about, there are still some serious hazards at level two. One's acceptance of the clouds of uncertainty may be so complete that the iron rod fades into the receding mist and skepticism becomes a guiding philosophy. Often this perspective comes from erasing the outer circle, representing the ideal or what ought to be, and focusing excessively on the inner circle of reality. 
When I was a teacher at the BYU Law School, I noticed how common it was among our first-year students to experience great frustration as they discovered how much our legal system is characterized not by hard, fast rules, but by legal principles that often appear to contradict each other. I remember, for example, one student who approached me after a class in his first year early in the semester expressing the confusion he was encountering in his study of the law. He said he had what he called a low tolerance for ambiguity and had been wondering if part of his problem was that he had just returned only weeks before from a mission where everything was crisp and clear or even the words he was to speak were provided for him. To feel successful, all he had to do was follow the step-by-step -step plan given him for each day and each task on his mission. Law school was making him feel totally at sea as he groped for simple guidelines that would tell him what to do. His circumstance was only another example of what I have previously tried to describe as typical of college and university students early in their experience. But by the time our law students would reach their third year of study, it was not at all uncommon for them to develop such a high tolerance for ambiguity that they were skeptical about everything, including some dimensions of their religious faith, where formerly they felt they had all the ans answers but just did not know what the questions were. They now seem to have all the answers—excuse me, they now seem to have all the questions but few of the answers. So I found myself wanting to tell our third-year law students that those who take too much delight in their finely honed tools of skepticism and dispassionate analysis will limit their effectiveness in the Church and elsewhere because they become contentious, standoffish, arrogant, unwilling to get involved and commit themselves. I have seen some of these try out their new intellectual tools in some context like a priesthood quorum or a Sunday school class. A well-meaning teacher will make a point they think is a little silly, and they will feel an irresistible urge to leap to their feet and pop the teacher's bubble. If they are successful, they begin looking for other opportunities to point out the exception to any rule anybody can state. They begin to delight in cross-examination of the unsuspecting, just looking for somebody's bubble up there floating around so they can pop it with their shiny new pin. And in all that, they fail to realize that when some of those bubbles pop, out goes the air, and with it goes much of the feeling of trust, loyalty, harmony, and sincerity, so essential to preserving the Spirit of the Lord. If that begins to happen in your ward, in your home, in your marriage, you might have begun to destroy the fragile fabric of trust that binds us together in all loving relationships. People in your ward may come away from some of their encounters with you wondering how you can possibly have a deep commitment to the Church and do some of the things you do. Now, I am not suggesting that we should always just smile and nod our approval, implying that everything is wonderful and that our highest hope is that everybody have a nice day. That's level one. I am suggesting that you realize the potential for evil as well as good that may come with what a college education can do to your mind and your way of dealing with other people. The dangers of which I speak are not limited to our relations with others. They can become very personal, prying into our own hearts in unhealthy ways. The ability to acknowledge ambiguity is not a final form of enlightenment. 
Having admitted it to a willingness temporarily to suspend judgment on questions that seem hard to answer, having developed greater tolerance and more patience, our basic posture toward the Church can, if we are not careful, gradually shift from being committed to being noncommittal. That is not a healthy posture. Indeed, in many ways, a Church member who moves from a stage of commitment to a stage of being tentative and noncommittal is in a worse position than one who has never before experienced a basic commitment. The previously committed person who develops a tolerance for ambiguity that is too well developed may too easily assume that he has already been through the positive mental attitude routine and he knows better now as he judges things. He may assume that being submissive, meek, obedient, and humble are matters with which he is already familiar and that he has finally outgrown the need to work very hard at being that way again. Brothers and sisters, those are the assumptions of a hardened heart. I once had an experience that taught me a great lesson about the way a highly developed tolerance for being realistic can inhibit the workings of the Spirit in our lives. When I had been on my mission in Germany about a year, I was assigned to work with a brand new elder named Elder Keeler, who had just arrived fresh from converting, so he thought, all the stewardesses on the plane from New York to Frankfurt. Within a few days of his arrival, I was called to a meeting in another city and I had to leave him to work in our city with another inexperienced missionary whose companion went with me. I returned late that night. The next morning I asked him how his day had gone. He broke into a big smile and said he had found a family who would surely join the Church. In our mission, it was rare to see anybody join the Church, let alone a whole family. I asked for more details, but he had forgotten to write down the name and the address. All he could remember was that the family lived on the top floor of a big apartment house. Oh, that's great, I thought to myself as I contemplated all those steps of stairs. He also explained that he knew so little German that he had exchanged but a few words with the woman who answered the door. But he did think she wanted us to come back, and he wanted to go find her and have me talk to her that very minute. I explained to him that all the people who don't slam the door in our face are not planning to join the Church. But off we went to find her, mostly to humor him. He couldn't remember the right street either. So we picked a likely spot in our tracting area and began climbing up and down those endless polished staircases. After a frustrating hour of that, I decided I really needed to level with him. I said, based on my many months of experience, it is simply not worth our time to try any longer to find that woman. I've developed a tolerance for the realities of missionary work, and I know more about all this than you do. His eyes filled with tears and his lower lip began to tremble. This elder was no dummy. He's recently graduated from Bolt Hall Law School at Berkeley. I remember it so well. He said to me through those tear-filled eyes, Elder Hafen, I came on my mission to find the honest in heart. The Spirit told me that that woman was going to join the Church, and you can't stop me from finding her. Well, I decided I had to teach him a lesson. So I raced him up one staircase after another until he was ready to drop, and so was I. Elder Keeler, I asked, had enough? No, he said, we've got to find her. I began to smolder. I decided to work him until he pled with me to stop. Then maybe he'd get the message. Then at the, at the top of a long flight of stairs, 
We found the apartment. She came to the door. He thrashed my ribs with his elbows and whispered loudly, That's her, Elder. That's the one. Talk to her. Not long ago, brothers and sisters, up on Maple Lane, a few blocks from here, that woman's husband sat in our living room. He was here for general conference because he is the bishop of the Monheim Ward. His two boys are preparing for missions. His wife and his daughter are pillars of the Church. That is a lesson I can never forget about the limitations of the skepticism and the tolerance for ambiguity that come with learning and experience. I hope that I will never be so aware of reality that I am unresponsive to the whisperings of heaven. It seems to me that the most productive response to ambiguity is at level three, where we not only view things with our eyes wide open but with our hearts wide open as well. When we do that, there will be many times when we will be called upon to take some action at a point where we think we may need more evidence before knowing just what to do. Those occasions may range from following the counsel of the Brethren on birth control to accepting a home teaching assignment. I believe from experience that it is always better to give the Lord and His Church the benefit of any doubts we may have when some case seems too close to call. I stress that the willingness to be believing and accepting in these cases is a very different matter from blind obedience. It is rather a loving and knowing kind of obedience. The English writer G. K. Chesterton once addressed questions similar to those I have raised today. He distinguished among optimists, pessimists, and improvers, as he called them, which roughly correspond to my three levels of dealing with ambiguity. He concluded that both the pessimists and the optimists look too much at only one side of things. He observed that Neither of them can be of much help in improving the human condition because people can't solve problems unless they are willing both to acknowledge that a problem exists and, let, and yet retain enough genuine loyalty to do, some, do something about it. More specifically, Chesterton wrote that the evil of the excessive optimist, level one, is that he will, quote, defend the indefensible. He is the jingo of the universe. He will say, my cosmos, right or wrong. He will be less inclined to the reform of things, more inclined to a sort of front-bench official answer to all attacks, soothing everyone with assurances. He will not wash the world, but whitewash the world." End of quote. On the other hand, the evil of the pessimist, level two, wrote Chesterton, is, quote, not that he chastises gods and men, but that he does not love what he chastises. And being the so-called candid friend, the pessimist is really not candid. He's keeping something back, his own gloomy pleasure in saying unpleasant things. He has a secret desire to hurt, not merely to help. He is using the ugly knowledge which was allowed him in order to strengthen the army to discourage people from joining it. And going on to describe the improvers, or level three, Chesterton illustrates by referring to women who tend to be so loyal to those who need them. Quote, Some stupid people started the idea that because women obviously back up their own people through everything, therefore women are blind and do not see anything. They can hardly have known any women. The same women who are ready to defend their men through thick and thin are almost morbidly lucid about the thinness of his excuses or the thickness of his head. Love is not blind, 
That is the last thing it is. Love is bound, and the more it is bound, the less it is blind. End of quote. Perhaps President Harold B. Lee was thinking of Chesterton's point about women when he used to say, Behind every great man there is an amazed woman. Chesterton's arranging of these categories make me think of one other simple way to compare the differing levels of perspective that people bring to the way they cope with ambiguity. I think of the metaphorical image of lead kindly light. At level one, people either do not or cannot see that there are both a kindly light and an encircling gloom, or that if there are both, that there is no great difference between the two. At level two, on the other hand, the difference is acutely apparent, but one's acceptance of the gap between the light and the gloom, or the ambiguity inherent in that, may be so wholeheartedly pessimistic as to say, just remember that the hour is darkest just before everything goes completely black. <laughs> How different are these responses from that calm but honest prayer of level three? Lead, kindly light, amid the encircling gloom, lead thou me on. I do not ask to see the distant scene, one step enough for me. May I conclude with a simple little illustration of the response of one who stood at level three. He had passed from level one because his eyes were fully open to the reality, including some of the pain, of seeing things for what they were. Yet he had moved from a level two kind of realism to a third level where his mature perspective permitted what he saw with those wide open eyes to be subordinated to what he felt in a wide open heart. The man in this case is my own father, who died about fifteen years ago. At the time of this incident, he was in his mid-fifties. He was very involved in his professional life and heavy obligations that frequently took him out of his hometown for several days at a time. He was tired. At a much earlier time in his life, he had served for ten years in a stake presidency. He had filled numerous other assignments for the Church. One day his friend, Brother Whitehead, approached him to say the stake presidency had called Brother Whitehead to be the bishop of the ward. Brother Whitehead had told the presidency he would accept the assignment only if my father would act as his first counselor. Now it's one thing to be called as a counselor in the bishopric when one is young, full of fresh enthusiasm to learn about leadership in the Church, and one's time is not heavily committed. One might understandably have a somewhat different attitude at a later time in life. Let me share with you the inner thoughts of my father's heart as he wrote them so confidentially that day in his personal journal. Quote, my first reaction was, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I know something of the work required of a bishopric. It's a constant, continual grind. There's no let-up. I am busy, and my state affairs demand what spare time and energy I have. In some respects, I'm not humble and prayerful enough. I've not always been willing to submit unquestioningly to all the decisions of the Church. But neither do I feel that I can say no to any call that is made by the Church. And so now I add to my first reaction, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. I will resolve to do it as best I can. There will be times when I will chafe under the endless meetings, but I am going to get in tune with the program of the Church in every way. I don't intend to get sanctimonious, but I know there must be no reservations in my heart about my duties and responsibilities. The work of the Church will have to come first. It will not be hard for me to pay my tithing and attend regularly as I have been doing that. But I will have to learn, I suppose, to love the Deseret News or at least the Church section as much as I love the Tribune. 
I will have to get to the temple more often. I will have to become better acquainted with the ward members and be genuinely interested in them and their problems. I will have to learn to love every one of them and to dispose myself in such a way that they might find it possible to feel the same toward me. Perhaps in my weak way, I will have to try and live as close to the Lord as we expect the general authorities to do." End of quote. Perhaps my appreciation for understatement and my personal knowledge that my dad was an honest man makes that statement seem to me a more striking example of dealing humbly with ambiguity than it really is. <clears throat> but his statement stirs me to want to be as childlike as my education has taught me to be tough-minded, wise as serpents and harmless as doves, I believe the Savior called it. <clears throat> All I ask then, brothers and sisters, is that we who go to college may be honest enough and courageous enough to face whatever uncertainties we may encounter, but that we try to understand them and then do something about them. We love the Church. We love our faith. We may not understand everything in the universe that does not diminish our love. Perhaps then we will not be living on borrowed light. Love is not blind. That is the last thing it is. Love is bound, and the more it is bound, the less it is blind. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.